Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together. It's good to open with you to the book of 1 Thessalonians. So do that with me, 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to read from uh, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for this moment and this day this opportunity again to open your word, to hear from you. And so we ask again that your spirit would be here among us. And I pray, Lord, that through your spirit there would be soft and tender hearts toward you, toward the truth of your word. We ask that you would do that miracle among us, that you would break up our stony hearts and make us sensitive to your leading. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On the 1st of July, 1750, Jonathan Edwards stepped into the pulpit that he'd been stepping into for 23 years to preach a sermon titled simply, A Farewell Sermon. It would be the last he ever preached to that congregation. He'd been voted out by a majority of the church over an issue surrounding the doctrine of communion. On June 22nd, about a week prior, he'd also been dismissed by a local council of ministers. George Marsden, in his biography on Edwards' life, quotes a friend who says he witnessed Edwards' demeanor that week. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all the imaginable ills of life even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismissal. So what do you preach as a last sermon after you've just been voted out of the church? In his notebook, we see that Jeremiah 23 verse 5 had been swirling around in his mind. It marks the 23-year mark in the prophet's ministry. And it says this, For 23 years the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. That seems like a, a good connection, right? Well, Edwards did make passing reference to Jeremiah 23 He left out the rebuke, assuring the church, I am not about to compare myself to the prophet. He preached instead from 2 Corinthians 1.14. And I hope that as you have understood in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Another biographer, Ian Murray, writes, No congregation was ever spoken to more tenderly than the people of Northampton on July 1, 1750. He does not hide from his people that he had been plunged into an abyss of trouble and sorrow, yet his words are singularly free of blame or accusation. 
Now, Edwards did have this to say. All I have known among you for 23 years, we must one day rehearse in a different place. For ministers and people under their care must meet one another again before the tribunal of Christ at the day of judgment, there to give an account before the great judge, the Lord, the head of the church of their behavior one to another in the relation they have known each other in this world. And he concluded his sermon with these words. And let us all remember and never, never forget our future solemn meeting on that great day of the Lord, the day of infallible decision and of everlasting and unalterable sentence. Amen. Now, Edwards did in that final sermon what he had done so often for 23 years. He lifted the eyes of his congregation to something eternal, to another day to come. And we have just come through Paul's great section in the book of 1 Thessalonians on the second coming of Christ and that great day of the Lord. Paul would have his readers walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord with that day in mind. And with this as the backdrop, he now turns at the end of the letter to a series of short instructions. And he begins here with the relationship that exists between the members of a church and its shepherds, its elders. I am very grateful that our situation today is not at all like the situation Jonathan Edwards faced on July 1, 1750. But under God's providence, this is the text that has crossed our paths. And so we have an opportunity today that we should not miss. We need to check the state of our hearts on the matter of our relationship with our leaders. As Edward said, we'll one day stand before the Lord to give account for the way that we lived in the local body of Christ. Now... I'm very aware that it's a little awkward for a leader to stand up in the pulpit and then to tell you how you are to relate to your leaders. We're going to embrace the awkward today, okay? I have two headings. Number one, what we see from this passage is the activity of a true shepherd. And number two, the attitude of a healthy church member. So number one, the activity of a true shepherd. We don't know how this church came to have their leaders. Um, Did the apostles in that short time when they were among them before they were forced out of the city, were they able to appoint and leave elders with the church? Was this perhaps a function of Timothy's later visit to them? Remember when he comes and visits and then takes a report back to Paul? Or did these elders, these leaders just emerge naturally from the congregation and come to be recognized as such? One thing we do know is that with the founders of the church being forced out of the city, it was of vital concern that the church be left in the hands of good leaders. Paul made sure that every church, the churches that he planted, would not be left to their own devices, that there would be shepherds to protect, to warn, to watch over and to feed the sheep. In Acts chapter 14, this is long before he ever came to Macedonia and to the city of Thessalonica. 
We see there he's with Barnabas still, and they're going through the region of Asia Minor, and it's a difficult time in their ministry. There's great persecution and opposition. They plant churches in Lystra and Iconium and in Derbe, and then after planting these churches, it says they go back to strengthen the churches, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. In verse 23, to this end, it says they appointed elders in each church, plural, elders in each church. This practice is established in the New Testament, and the word elders used interchangeably in other places with words like overseer and shepherd or pastor. And in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12, Paul identifies this group of people by a threefold function. He says, they, they are those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So let's unpack each one of those. Firstly, those who labor among you. John Stott in his commentary writes this, true pastoral work is hard work. The verb Paul uses here normally refers to manual occupations. It means to toil, strive, struggle, and to grow weary in doing so. It conjures up pictures of rippling muscles and pouring sweat. Now, granted, since Mark and Charles are no longer on the eldership and had to step down for life busy family reasons. Now, when you think of the eldership, you don't really think ripped anymore. <laughs> I assure you, however, that your elders do work hard. In fact, even often to the point of fatigue, which is actually what's implied in Paul's word. Paul uses it over and over again to designate pastoral or ministerial labors he tries to encourage Timothy in his pastoral work in 2 Timothy 2 verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And the elder should strive for the heart of Paul in Colossians 1, 28 to 29. Paul says him, that's Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. For this I toil, says Paul, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul makes it very clear that pastors and elders who would lead in the church ought to be found hard at work. Matthew Henry aptly remarks, they are called laborers and should not be loiterers. The heart of a true shepherd is to be engaged in the work, eagerly desiring to serve the needs of the flock. And that's because there is a fire that should exist in the heart for the purity and the perseverance of God's sheep to present everyone mature in Christ. And I can say sincerely that I do see that fire in your elders. We ought to, as a church, be praying that that fire would never be extinguished in their hearts. They are those who labor among you. Number two, they are those who are over you in the Lord. And we live in an age where the word authority is a swear word. 
and leaders are being met more and more with suspicion. And so we are called in the church to live counterculturally with a structure that has been set up by God Himself where leaders actually lead with integrity and in love. And members actually follow with submission and in love. The word Paul uses for overuse actually very flexible. It's used in different ways in different places to manage, to rule, to lead, to guide, to protect, to help, even to be given over to something, to be devoted to something. The theological dictionary of the New Testament says that the way it's used in the intransitive middle here means literally to put oneself at the head or to go first. That in mind, and this broad use of leading and ruling and guiding and protecting, as I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but think of that, that Near Eastern style of shepherding that we know was in Jesus' mind when he was speaking in John chapter 10. The, the shepherd doesn't, in this time, drive the sheep from behind, but he calls, walking ahead. So Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so in the church, there ought to be this kind of leadership that says, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. You see, overseers are not just over. They are also under. Shepherds in the church are under shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. They are under him and they will give account to him. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. This is why Paul says that they are over you in the Lord. The calling comes from Christ. It flows from relationship with Jesus Christ. The elder serves faithfully to the degree that his heart mirrors the heart of Christ for the sheep. Ed Clowney, in his commentary, said, The elder has authority. He is called to exercise a shepherd's oversight. Christ, the chief shepherd, has called him to exercise a shepherd's care. But the under-shepherd is not a stand-in for the Lord. He represents the word, or he presents the word of the Lord, not his own decree. He enforces the will of the Lord, not his own wishes. So the elder exercises authority not for personal gain or out of personal pride, but in service to the ends of the Father for the children that he loves. Elders are to require submission and obedience, but not for the sake of their own egos, but because they want the sheep to know the one that they know and love the one that they love and walk with him in the blessing of closeness and nearness to him. The elder who is over you in the Lord ought therefore to strive for a balance, a balance that is often difficult to get right, where on the one hand they are gentle and lowly, because that is what Christ is like. He is gentle and lowly. A bruised reed he will not break. There has got to be in elders the sense of gentleness. There has to be. 
Faithful elders want their people to experience in their interactions with them the love of Christ, the goodness of Christ. There must be that gentleness on the one hand, and on the other hand, there has to be a firmness, a strength. They need to be courageous to call out the sin that would harm and would hurt and would cause havoc in the relationship between the sheep and their chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. They are those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Thirdly, they are those who admonish you. When was the last time you used the word admonish in a sentence? It's not a word that we use very much today. It involves primarily the correction of doctrinal and moral errors. Paul is speaking here to the the gatekeeping, the guarding functionality of elders in the church. Elders should be ready to recognize and expose false teaching when they see it. And they should be ready to provide correction when good doctrinal confession doesn't work itself out in right living. And again, this idea is very foreign to our world, isn't it? Personal correction has become anathema in our culture. How dare you peer into my life and my affairs and think that you can judge me? Right? We're not going to see 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12 quoted at all by the world. Respect those who labor among you and are over you and admonish you. And what we see in the world is a misuse of Jesus' words, judge not lest ye be judged. And the world would look at you if you are a member of this church as though you are crazy for entering into this kind of relationship that really is central to the life of the church, the members in submission to one another and to their elders. If you want people to lose their minds in the world, start talking about things like church discipline, right? If you go through our membership class, you'll hear about church discipline. We have it from Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. It's something we believe in, a principle we hold to. Jesus gave the church this this principle whereby, this process whereby if admonishing doesn't lead to corrective life change, the individual who refuses to repent from serious sin is to be banished from the church until they repent. The world hears that and says, that's too harsh. That's terrible. So it's why rarely will you ever find actually a church that is faithful to Matthew 18. But correction in the life of the church is very important. Its purpose is not to be harsh or unkind. In fact, the opposite, it is loving in its intention. We see this in the Apostle Paul himself, who is maybe the strongest and in the world's eyes the harshest example of church discipline. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he tells them to cast out of the church a man who had been persisting in gross sexual sin. He goes as far as to say, don't even associate with those like him. The world hears that and says, that's just unkind. That's unloving, Paul. How can you possibly speak like that? But in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul's heart in all of it, don't we? In the epilogue to this account in his follow-up letter, it seems like being forced out of the congregation, out of the church, had the desired effect of stirring this man up to repentance. And so in 2 Corinthians, 
Paul becomes the chief advocate for extending loving embrace. He says in chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And Paul says, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The point is love. That's the point of correction. In a world where no one is allowed to point out your flaws and your weaknesses, your faults, it's the responsibility in a community like this to admonish. It's the responsibility of every good leader. It's the responsibility of good parents. It's even the responsibility of members one to another. This is where we see the real substance of true Christian leadership. And we see it all the time in our world. It's easy to lead in a way that's all show and no substance, all of tickling ears and flattery with no vulnerability, no self-sacrificing and self-exposing care for the actual needs of the congregation of the flock. As C.J. Mahaney put it, a pastor who cares enough about you to risk his relationship with you in order to admonish you is a gift from God to you. So how do you re respond to those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you? Number two, the attitude of a healthy church member. Let's read verses 12 to 13a again. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Respect, esteem them very highly in love. Now, the word for respect uh, usually means in different contexts to know or to understand. It's for this reason I believe the NASB's translation is a little bit better. The NASB says, appreciate them. I believe that's a good interpretation. Appreciate those who labor among you. Esteem them, regard them, consider them very highly in love. And so, again, I think John Stott maybe says it best. As a member of the church, you are called to this twofold ministry under your elders, and it's a ministry of appreciation and affection. Appreciation and affection. Appreciate those who labor among you and are over you and admonish you. This threefold function of the elder in verse 12 actually implies a threefold ministry of appreciation among the members for their elders. That should be palpable, tangible in the life of the church. If elders, for starters, are to labor, in other words, to work hard with a fire for the purity and the perseverance of the flock, then church members are to receive that labor and welcome it. They are to seek out spiritual oversight, seek out care in those difficult times with tricky decisions of life. Approach your elders when you're in need. Call to them for help when you need it. Your elders love nothing more, I promise you, than to hear from you. I, I have a need. Can you please pray with me? Can you come alongside me? Members are to avail themselves of the weekly care that comes through the preaching of the word. 
to listen with open ears, willing and ready heart, desiring to hear from the Holy Spirit through the life-giving Scripture. The British pastor Tim Shenton tells of a missionary translator who, in the culture he was working with, was struggling to find a word that he could use to translate the concept of obedience. And, and he says one day this missionary arrived home and he whistled for his dog and his dog just came running at full speed. And there was an old native who saw, was watching and smiled and said to him, your dog is all ear. Your dog is all ear. And immediately the missionary knew which word or term he would use to translate the concept of obedience. Are you all ears when the Bible is preached? when it is taught, when it is counseled well? Are you all ears? And I can say this with all sincerity and truthfulness in my heart. This is one of the reasons I'm so grateful to be a part of this church. I'm so grateful to be able to stand here and preach because I know that this is true of this congregation in general. I believe... I, I've seen other churches, I believe sincerely that there is an, an above average appreciation for the elders of the church. The, the amount of times we get messages saying, we're praying for you. We know that you have to make a decision about X, Y, or Z, and you're in our thoughts, in our prayers. There is a thirst for the Word of God in this church. There is an expectation yeah, that preaching and that teaching would be taken seriously, that whoever fills the pulpit would be given to the task in prayer and in anguish of heart. I'm so grateful to you that you don't want your ears to be, I know this sounds a little bit like flattery, but you don't want your ears to be tickled. I know that you will hold me accountable to being faithful to the word. And I'm grateful for your prayers and your regular encouragement. We are not a, a perfect church. A perfect church does not exist. But I believe that there is a healthy valuing of what is best in this place. Second, if God has ordained the role of overseer to exercise authority and protection, church members are called to submit to that authority. They are called to submit to that authority. Elders in the local church exercise spiritual authority on Christ's behalf. And in the New Testament, you have to understand this, there is no concept of somebody who is just a free agent with respect to faith and to service. There's nothing of, it's just me and Jesus and the mountains. It doesn't exist. And in case you're wondering, this is one of the reasons we keep harping on church membership. It's one of the reasons we hold so doggedly to a high view of church membership. Scripture says to your shepherds, you will give account. I'm gonna stand before the Lord one day and I'm gonna give account for a group of people. Without church membership, the question is, for whom? For whom would I give account? Church membership involves the formation of a covenant that is the only way that leaders and congregants can function spiritually in the ways that passages like this lay out. I have to say that it's, it's simple and it's true. Church members 
submit to their leaders. And finally, church members appreciate their leaders by responding humbly to correction that is given in love. So again, when Hebrews 13, 17 calls for obedience to church leaders, there's a reason for that obedience, for they are keeping watch over your souls. When you want to install a security system in your house and you, you call an expert to come in, and they say there's a vulnerable spot here, or you need an eye over there, and when they say that, what you do is you, you listen, you pay attention. When you go to your doctor and your doctor says, oh, we've got to run some tests. You run the tests, right? Well, how much more shouldn't eager obedience be given to those who care for your soul? Good leaders speak the truth in love, gently and patiently, but firmly. And good disciples listen with open hearts and with a gratitude that they have someone in their life willing to risk the wrath of man for the sake of their good and for the purity of the church. It's not easy to confront. Very few people like to do it. Pray for your elders. You know what often happens in the church is in the busyness of everything that we're trying to do and the events we have on the calendar and all the things that come up, often admonition takes a back seat in the life of the church. Pray. Pray for courage and diligence in your elders, in your home group leaders, in the parents of the church that they would admonish their children out of love. Pray for the church in general that more and more we would speak the truth in love to one another and receive the truth in love from one another. Ministry is a ministry of appreciation. And secondly, in verse 13, a ministry of affection. And here is where the, the rubber hits the road. I think I used that wrong. <laughs> it's time to check your heart. Verse 13 Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Esteem them very highly in love. Paul basically invents a word here. It's a triple intensive that means beyond, exceedingly, abundantly. He uses the same word in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, when he says God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. So remember, is this true of you, that you consider your leaders in the highest possible way? See, this is what is at the heart of a healthy church member. This is what it looks like. It looks like grace, a spirit of generosity, sincere and earnest desire to trust the integrity and the motivations of your leaders. When a member is always impugning the motives of his or her leaders or quick to jump to the worst conclusions, it definitely speaks of an unhealthy situation, doesn't it? And very likely an unhealthy church member. Now, elders are not perfect. They are not perfect. They make mistakes and they ought to repent when they make those mistakes. But it should be the norm for every church member to have in their hearts a decided trust in those leaders, especially if there is, as I believe in our situation, a healthy plurality of those leaders. 
Members are not called to follow blindly, but they are called to follow with grace, believing the best of those who are over them in the Lord. We are to believe the best of each and every one of us. Paul says, esteem them very highly in love. So just as love ought to be the defining mark in all of our relationships, it should certainly be the defining characteristic of how you relate to your leaders. In every interaction that we have, we ought to go away from that interaction asking and wondering, was it love that drove what I said? Was it love that drove the way I responded? Was it love that drove what I did right now? And let me give you a little secret. It is very possible to act sincerely and in kindness and in love even when you are disagreeing with somebody. It's possible to confront with love and with warmth and with sincere hope for purity in the church. And finally, notice Paul here gives a reason for why you are to esteem your elders highly in love. He says in verse 13, because of their work. Because of their work. It's amazing to me that Paul appeals to their work as a reason for their love, not to their merit, not to their personality. We live in a day and age where we like to deify the leaders we like. We live in a day and age of celebrity pastors. But the truth is that the longer that you know somebody, the more you'll be aware of their flaws. And I promise you, the longer you live in a church, it is inevitable that at some point or another, your leaders will let you down. They will fail you. It could be something small, like a forgotten birthday. Maybe something a little bit bigger, thoughtless words spoken. Just this week, somebody said to me, and I believe rightly, I told you I needed help and you let me down. So what do you do? What do you do when your leaders let you down? You esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. When unhealthy members are always engaging their leaders with suspicion and with distrust, what is it that happens? You'll be easily offended in every interaction. You'll be slow to understand. It's a breeding grounds for miscommunication. And the discord that will be evident will rob the rest of the church of the time of leaders that should be better spent in fruitful labor. It is a, a problem often in the church that Time is given to people who are always just going to be discontented anyway. Leon Morris says in his commentary, It is a matter of fact to this day, we are often slow to realize that effective leadership in the church of Christ demands effective following. If we are continually critical of those who are set over us in the Lord, small wonder they are unable to perform the miracles that we demand of them. Church member, how is your heart on this? How is your heart today? If the natural inclination of your heart right now is towards a distrust of your leadership, then something has to change. You cannot go the rest of your life with that being the state of your heart. Scripture would not allow it. Something must change. Confrontation must be had. Words need to be spoken in love. Paul 
ends his instruction by giving us a command. In verse 13, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Unity is not the most important thing in the church, but it is certainly very important. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are rare occasions in the life of the church that you need to stand up like Martin Luther and nail your 95 theses to the church door and say, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. There are times where that needs to happen. But the truth is that most of the things that get nailed to the church of the door are not issues worth fighting over even. Surveys about the volume of the, the music. They are good questions to ask, but they are not worth fighting over. There are certainly many issues that get raised in the wrong way. Many issues are not worth coming or, or, or being confronted about with suspicion and mistrust. And so often we have many false justifications for why peace cannot be had in the church. God has called us to peace. He's called us to love peace, to be intentional peacemakers. He's called us to grace with one another, to be patient and understanding, and to the beauty of forgiveness. There is nothing more beautiful than a community where that forgiveness is on display. One of the most significant signs of the work of the Holy Spirit in a church is jealousy for peace within the church, a peace that is forged around the truth of the gospel. And what is it that the gospel says to us? The gospel says that we have been reconciled to a holy Father, not because of ourselves, not by what we've done, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, His merit, our Prince of Peace. We have become the adopted children of God, Church, we are the family of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Five times in this closing section, Paul is going to refer to them as brothers. Do we love the church like God loves the church? Do we look at the church? Do we look at one another the way Jesus does? Christ has made his heart clear. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. May we never be found tearing down what he wants to build up. He loves the church and gave himself for her. So, Elder, do you love the church to the point of your blood and sweat and tears? And church member, do you love the church with grace and appreciation and affection and submission to your leaders. Minister, ministers and people under their care, says Edwards, must meet one another again before the tribunal of Christ at the day of judgment, there to give an account before the great judge, the Lord, the head of the church, of their behavior one to another and the relation they have known each other in this world. Let's pray. Father, we, um, 
we sometimes look at the, the church as a, a leader, an elder in your church. I, I look at my, my weakness and my flaws and sometimes I want to question the wisdom of the way you have set things up. We are, are prone to mistakes, to letting one another down. We know the elders in this church are not perfect. And so, Father, we do, we do ask for your mercy and your grace. We ask for your forgiveness for those times where we, we do let your people down. But Jesus, we know that you are the true chief shepherd of their souls. That you never let us down. And that you never fail. And that you are holding each and every one of us and you will see the work done. We will stand before you on that day. And so we come before you with gratitude and with love and adoration. And I pray, Lord, for this church. I pray for your people here. I pray that grace would abound more and more. And that it would be evident in the way that we speak to one another. And love one another. Not shying away from sin or from difficult confrontations. Speaking the truth in love. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be forgiving. Let it be that if anyone were to walk in from the world, that they would see among us, they spend time with us, something that is so countercultural in a world that does not understand peace. Help us to be peacemakers because we serve and love the Prince of Peace. Amen.